Welcome to the Introvert University Podcast. My name is Harrison Paul, the introvert philosopher, and I'll be your instructor. Introversion is a vital concept to understand to make sense of the human experience, but today it is widely misunderstood. The goal of this podcast is to explain and describe introversion and its implications for many fields, the mind, society, fiction writing, philosophy and religion, and even social justice. In this course, the philosophy and science of introversion, we will explore how theories and research related to introversion developed from its beginnings with Carl Jung to the present. Our first lecture is entitled, The Origin of the Introvert. Welcome and let's get started. First, I'd like to introduce myself and explain my qualifications for teaching this course. Most importantly, in my opinion, I've spent the first 34 years of my life searching for my identity. I've always felt different from other people around me, but I could never quite pinpoint why it was. I really enjoyed being in my mind, reading fiction, making up stories in my head, just imagining other worlds. I also had trouble in conventional situations that my peers seemed to have no problem with, social situations, the physical world. I didn't know how to ask a girl on a date, and I had no idea what to do once you did. I was not very good at playing sports. I didn't understand many aspects of, of the social world and social situations. Even as I got older, I always thought it was just because I was too young, and when I got older, I would figure it out. But I noticed, even as I grew up, I still had these concerns and these issues. I wasn't really sure what was wrong with me. I sought for many explanations throughout my youth and childhood. For example, I thought I was a robot who had been placed here with human parents, and for some reason, I was being tested to, to see if I would develop human emotions. I thought I was an alien. I thought I might have been dropped off here by my people, and someday they would come and, and uh, take me back. Someday I would discover my true tribe. Reading in the Bible about people possessed with evil spirits, I, I used to wonder, do I need to get an exorcist involved? Do I need to get a, a blessing from someone with, with priesthood power to heal me of this, this inadequate emotional life that I have? I had all these different ideas. Uh, eventually it coalesced into a better understanding of personality as I started studying personality types and personality disorders. I went through a psychological evaluation and I learned a great deal from that. I also started studying the Myers-Briggs type indicator and the 16 types that its developers described. But over time, I started to notice some significant discrepancies between the claims of Myers-Briggs and what I observed about people's personalities in my daily life, in institutions such as work, church, school, even entertainment, and how people communicated with each other. I consistently tested as the INTJ type, uh, but different authors inspired by the Myers-Briggs types claimed that famous presidents or action heroes from dystopian novels were the same type as me, even though we had little in common. I saw different patterns of how many people were of which type across different contexts. Different numbers than Myers-Briggs so confidently asserted from tests that were claimed to be valid and reliable. And I started to wonder where their theory originally came from. And so what I decided to do was to go back to the source, go back to Carl Jung himself, who was supposedly the source for personality typing, for introversion. And I read through Jung's psychological types and discovered what the introvert actually was. And so this is one main reason I'm teaching this course. And I'm, I've opened Introvert University. It's to start a conversation and to present some ideas 
that may not be widely distributed or understood about what introversion really is and how it affects people in society. My second qualification for teaching this course is that I have a master's degree in philosophy, which gives me the theoretical background to analyze these ideas, as well as a distinctive perspective on them outside of contemporary psychology. So our course begins with the life and work of Swiss psychoanalytic psychotherapist Carl Gustav Jung. Jung lived in Zurich, Switzerland for much of his life. His father was a rural pastor of the Swiss Reformed Church, and he studied under Sigmund Freud. Jung, much like me, felt alienated from those around him for much of his life. At least this is the impression I get reading his autobiography. Like he had this, his own world that he could never really tell others about. For example, when he was 10 years old, he carved his school ruler into an intricate little mannequin and hid it in a pencil case in his attic. It seemed to be a representation to him of something that he had that no one else knew about or could get at, as if it comforted him to have a piece of his own world away from the prying, hostile eyes of everyone else. He also had prophetic dreams. For example, later in his life, when Jung was hospitalized for an illness, he had a dream that showed the doctor tending him as a sort of guardian spirit in the afterlife, which indicated to Jung that the doctor would soon die. When he awoke, he desperately tried to warn the doctor of his impending fate, but no one listened. And when the doctor died shortly thereafter, Jung had his dream confirmed, at least to himself. Jung also had some very powerful uh, religious experiences that caused him to distance himself from his father's church. He felt he had encountered God at some points in his life, and it was such a powerful experience that when he was baptized into the church that his father was in charge of, and when he didn't feel the same kind of spiritual power, he was disappointed and disillusioned, and he was never really associated with organized religions. But as we will see, he believed that a purely materialist conception of the universe that doesn't take anything considered spiritual into consideration misses out on the wisdom and the wholeness of developing the unconscious mind. Some of the main ideas that Jung contributed to psychology are, along with Freud, the emphasis on the unconscious mind. Before Freud and Jung, it was not generally thought of, at least in Western culture, that the unconscious mind could be such an important part of our identity and our drives. He believed that our unconscious and conscious minds form this complementary pair of opposites in our mental lives, and that we can achieve harmony with our whole self by embracing and reconciling these opposites. He called this process individuation. So becoming our full and complete selves and not um, pushing aside or repressing any aspect of ourselves. He also believed that we could discover how to reconcile these opposites through dreams, because dreams allow us to apprehend these symbols that the unconscious mind generates. And these symbols that we encounter can help us reconcile ideas in our conscious mind that seem to be contradictory. Now, the reason that we're focusing so intensely on the work of Carl Jung at the beginning of this course is because Jung is considered the father of introversion. This is because he took various ideas related to introversion and extroversion and presented the first unified theory in his 1921 book, Psychological Types. So how did Jung discover introverts and extroverts? There are two primary ways that come out through the reading of psychological types. The first is that 
he was a psychoanalytic psychotherapist. He met with clients in clinical settings. He counseled with them about their problems, and he noticed certain trends. So this is one of the sources. The second source, and the one that will take up the bulk of our lecture, is that philosophers and theologians throughout the history of Western civilization have come to opposite conclusions or lived or championed opposite conceptions of knowledge and ways of life, and that they seem to oppose one another on the question of whether to focus on the self or focus on the world. I'll explain this more in depth as we go along. So let's first delve into Jung the psychoanalyst. As a clinical psychologist, Jung met with patients to discuss various symptoms that they were going through. And he noticed that many times you would have patients who come from similar situations but would display completely different symptoms. Sometimes environments that were optimal for some people were miserable for others. For example, two siblings may come from the same environment, but one was depressed and the other was fine, or one was depressed and the other was hysterical. He saw people developing different psychological problems, and he wondered if it wasn't so much the environment that was causing these differences in results. But he, this kept coming up with people in similar situations, and he thought, maybe it isn't external. Maybe it's something internal to the person. Maybe it's the way that this person relates to the world. It's a principle internal to the person's mind, which is causing this. So this was one of his first clues. Now let's take a look at Jung the philosopher. In the early 1900s, psychology had just branched off from its beginnings in philosophy. And we might even argue that it had yet to fully branch off from philosophy and become a science. So one thing that Jung noticed about philosophy was that philosophers tend to come to opposite conclusions and this has happened for thousands of years without really reaching a resolution on some of these questions. We might ask ourselves, does this mean that philosophy never progresses? We keep going through the same arguments over and over. What is the nature of knowledge? What is a good life? What is the nature of reality? These ideas are debated for thousands of years. Now, in some ways, this is an unfair assessment of philosophy. Philosophy does progress if we think about the many disciplines that it has spawned chemistry, biology, physics, and even psychology, have branched off from philosophy. Some of these were called natural philosophy because they were the philosophy of the natural world and became their own disciplines when they were codified and became sciences. However, in Jung's time, psychology was still a very theoretical endeavor. If we go back to people like Freud and Jung, we look at their theories and they are not really empirical theories that are based on modern style scientific studies. Instead, they're based on concepts that they've developed through their experiences. And they're really theories about how the mind works. They're not supposed to be empirical. They're not supposed to be falsifiable. This is not the same thing that we talk about in science. Instead, we're really talking about something that's much more like philosophy. As a result, we see Jung drawing examples from history and looking for broad patterns and themes rather than doing specific experiments. In doing so, Jung formulates what he calls the type problem, how people have taken opposing views on important issues in history based on an emphasis on either the physical and material or the abstract and the spiritual. So there are these two different paradigms, one and one group of people or school of thought that tends to emphasize the internal, and another opposing school of thought or group of thinkers that tend to emphasize the external. Now, what are some examples that he gives? He talks about 
ancient Christian writers debating the nature of Jesus. Was he wholly divine and just pretending to be mortal? Was he wholly mortal and not really divine? Or was he some combination of the two? Likewise, if we are to accept knowledge, does it come from an external source or an internal source? Medieval philosophers also debated this, and he discusses this in his first chapter. They talked about the nature of reality. For example, the ideas in our minds, are those ideas more real than the objects of our physical experience? We might argue that the ideas, because they never change, are more real. However, we might also argue that the objects, because they're physical and tangible, are more real, and that ideas are just something we make up to make sense of objects. So this is a great example of the type problem because most medieval philosophers would fall into one camp or the other. And Jung says that both camps make sense as long as you adopt the same premises or the same assumptions at the beginning. If you adopt the assumption that the mind is more likely to lead you to truth than the body, then you come to the conclusion that ideas are real. If you believe that the senses are more likely to reveal what is true, then objects are more real. And so this is what he's talking about with regard to the type of problem. And he says that the reason that they come to different conclusions is not because one is right and the other is wrong, but because they're starting from two different sets of assumptions. And their psychological type is the reason that they start from one assumption or one set of assumptions rather than the other. So for chapters two through nine of his book, he continues talking about the various thinkers who influenced him in coming to this insight that people will disagree on important philosophical issues and will even fall into two different categories of mental life on the basis of being one of two complementary opposite types, and that these types can be described as the introvert and the extrovert. So where does he begin? He begins with Friedrich Schiller, a famous German poet and philosopher from the 18th century. And there's so much here that we could discuss, but I would like to stay to the most basic and fundamental ideas. So I'm going to only give us the most important overview of the ideas from these next chapters. But for now, let me just highlight one important contribution he gains from Friedrich Schiller. Schiller argues that our feelings and thoughts are sometimes directed at the subject of experience and sometimes at the object of experience. Now, what does he mean by this? Think about the object of experience as anything you experience, sensations, people around you, any kind of experience you have, whether it's a thought that you have, whether it's a feeling, whether it's an idea, these are all experiences. And so if this is the object of experience, what would the subject be? Well, the subject would just be the experiencing self. So the one who is experiencing all of these things. Now, if you think about it, our feelings and thoughts can be directed outward toward our experiences, toward the external world, our body, other people, our environments, or they can be directed internally. We can reflect on something we've taken in as an experience. We can reflect on our own logic or sense of morals. So there are these two different directions that our thoughts and feelings can go. Jung calls these type attitudes, and this will be important toward his development of extroversion and introversion. Another thinker that Jung draws from is British anatomy professor Fernod Jordan, who wrote 
what Yun calls a small and rather odd book called Character as Seen in Body and Parentage. Jordan, in his book, put together some personality portraits of uh, four different types of individuals. The more impassioned man and woman and the less impassioned man and woman. And he talks about them in the sense that those who are more impassioned are also those who are less active on the outside. Now, the way Jung presents this, the way he interprets this, and note that he is always critical of his sources. He never just accepts them as they are, but he always incorporates what he finds beneficial about their ideas into his overall paradigm. But what does he see in Jordan's work? He sees that Jordan has identified a type of man and a type of woman, or he just says these two different types of people, one type of which is more active externally. We can see what they're more active in doing, and the other is more active internally. This is the source of that passion that Jordan talks about. But this activity, we are less able to see it. So we might say that there's one type of person who is more active on the outside than in the inside, and the other who is more active on the inside than on the outside. Jung also goes into a long chapter on the type problem in poetry. And while we don't have time for very much of this, I will note that he draws out of an important poem, Carl Spitler's Prometheus and Epimetheus, that people can be morally introverted or extroverted. And the way we might describe this is to ask, where do you get your moral cues from? How do you determine right from wrong? Is it from an external source or an internal source? Is it from something in the object of experience or the experiencing self? We might say if social institutions, traditions, or current trends, fashions, or other people are influential on your moral outlook, this is an external or extroverted influence. If your own intuitions, thoughts, and feelings, or maybe your own memories and subjective experiences are the primary influence on your morality, then this would be an internal introverted influence. Jung next draws from an Austrian psychoanalyst named Otto Gross, a fellow student of Freud's, who describes two types of patients who responded to inferiority issues in different ways. He then applied these to features he saw in two types of people in the general population. He called them the abstract inventor and the civilizing genius. And he talks about them in terms of their response to stimulation and how they deal with the physical environment around them and their own internal mental life. So Gross argues that the civilizing genius is a kind of person who is practical, adaptable to changing physical circumstances, but has a less ordered inner world. On the contrary, the abstract inventor is often melancholy, socially inhibited in the external world, but very innovative and has a rich inner life. They also have different preferences for external stimulation. The civilizing genius type is much more comfortable with external stimulation. And as Jung argues, it, this kind of person, the extrovert, can actually have a very hard time in a solitary environment. On the other hand, the abstract inventor, or what Jung will call the introverted type, has a much richer inner life. And on the other hand, prefers a less stimulating external environment. However, he notes that people who are this introverted type, who are in comfortable environments, can appear extroverted because the stimulation level is right. So there are different preferences between the two types for external stimulation. He also connects the type problem to 
aesthetics or the enjoyment of art. And essentially what we draw from this is that some people are more inclined to pursue objects of experience and some to withdraw from them. We can relate this to Gross's idea of stimulation. Some people will seek out stimulating environments. Some people will withdraw from them. And so you are more likely on this account as an extrovert to identify yourself with the object and to go embrace it, go embrace your experiences in the external world. And as an introvert, more likely to see the object of the external world or external experiences as dangerous and to withdraw or separate yourself from it. Next, Jung turns to American pragmatist philosopher William James, who actually describes two types of philosophers. For James, these are the tender-minded and tough-minded philosophers. Now, James argues that tender-minded philosophers tend to be optimistic. They tend to be more spiritual or religious. They tend to believe in the possibility of mysticism, of the, a belief in consciousness, the power of the mind over the body. They believe in free will, not determinism, and they believe in the power of reason to ascertain truth. On the other hand, tough-minded philosophers tend to be more pessimistic. They tend to be more um, focused on the body, on the physical senses. They believe in determinism more than free will. They're reductionist, and they're ultimately empiricist, so they believe that science and the physical senses can determine or can give us the best knowledge that we can have of truth. Now, Jung actually critiques James on this. He doesn't believe that tender and tough-minded philosophers adequately describe introverts and extroverts. Uh, for example, he says that being optimistic or pessimistic doesn't really seem to be relevant for the discussion of introverts and extroverts. People could be either one and be an extrovert or introvert. However, he says that this idea resonates because those who begin believing that reason can discern truth or that the mind is more capable instrument to discern truth are going to come to different conclusions than those who begin with the body or with science or the physical senses in mind. Finally, he turns to a biographer named Wilhelm Ostwald, who chronicles the lives of famous scientists. And Ostwald divides scientists into two types, at least the scientists that he studied, romantic and classic scientists. So the romantic scientists were those who became famous earlier in life. They were able to effectively communicate their ideas and be effective teachers to answer others' questions about their theories. Later in life, they tended to broaden their focus because they had more popularity and to often leave the original subject that they had started out studying. On the other hand, classic scientists were those who became famous later in their life or perhaps posthumously. They found it difficult to communicate and they saw questions from others as perhaps interesting problems to work through in their minds, rather than a, questions, a question from the audience to address. And so they were less effective at conveying their ideas, less socially savvy. They tended to have a narrower focus and less popularity, which means that they tended to stick with their original subject longer and often until their deaths. So at this point, we get to chapter 10 of Psychological Types, the general description of the types. And this is the one that people will often skip to if all they want to know is which type am I. Um, but it is absolutely crucial that we go through Jung's process of discovering types so we can see what he really meant by this. Because at this point, Jung gives us his definition of extroversion and introversion. So we're going to go through extroversion and the extroverted type and then talk about introversion and the introverted type. So what is extroversion? According to Jung, 
Extroversion or the extroverted attitude is the attitude that pursues or is energized by the object of experience. Here's his definition. And I'm going to use the word mental, the phrase mental energy instead of libido, because I think it better conveys what he was trying to talk about in language that we use. We don't use the word libido in the same way today that he used it in his time. So extroversion is an outward turning of mental energy, a positive movement of subject interest towards the object. Everyone in the extroverted state thinks, feels, and acts in relation to the object, and moreover in a direct and clearly observable fashion. When extroversion is habitual, we speak of the extroverted type. So we now come to Jung's definition of the extrovert. The extrovert is a person who more naturally and habitually engages with the object of experience, the external physical world, a person for whom the extroverted attitude feels more natural. The extrovert will assume that the physical world and experiences in the physical world are more real. They tend to be more active. The source of morality tends to be external. The extrovert tends to want and need more external stimulation, will pursue objects of experience rather than withdraw from them. For the extrovert, there's more of a focus on the body, sensations, and environment, and also relationships with other people. Extroverts tend to be more physically active, to be able to adapt better to the physical world, and to do better in high-stimulation environments. They also tend to value things in the physical world, or objects of experience, sensory experiences, social status, material goods, relationships, or achievement. And all of this is true because the extrovert is fundamentally more attuned to and more drawn toward the external world. So this is really the definition, this outward turning of mental energy. If that is more habitual and natural, then the person will be an extrovert. And these other inclinations come along with that. They are either included with it in the inborn temperament, or they develop as a result of this inborn temperament. So we can now turn to introversion. What is the introverted attitude for Carl Jung? It is an inward turning of mental energy, a negative relation of subject to object. Interest does not move toward the object, but withdraws from it into the subject. Everyone whose attitude is introverted thinks, feels, and acts in a way that clearly demonstrates that the subject is the prime motivating factor and that the object is of secondary importance. When introversion is habitual, we speak of an introverted type. So we finally come to the introvert. What is an introvert by definition? a person whose mental energy habitually turns more inward than outward. So the introvert will assume that their mind or their subjective self is more real than their objective external world. They tend to be more reflective, tend to draw morals from within their, themselves, tend to prefer internal to external stimulation and withdraw from objects of experience. Introverts take longer to mature externally because the social world is seen as dangerous, threatening, or just uncomfortable. They tend to be more inclined to mysticism and non-empirical thinking. Introverts will focus on their own thoughts, feelings, insights, theories, or memories, and are influenced more by their own internal world. This also affects introverts' values. They tend to value, rather than external goods, internal goods, self-knowledge, meaning, personal principles, and connection to a higher reality. Now, Jung admits that these are simplified pictures. No one is entirely introverted or entirely extroverted. Everyone has both of these sides of our mind. Sometimes we are 
engaging with the subject of experience, reflecting inwardly. Sometimes we're engaging with the object of experience, acting or engaging externally. We might say that someone who's only introverted would be in a catatonic state. They would never act. They would never engage with external experience. And someone who is only extroverted would be like a beast or a robot, would just act but never reflect and never consider that they have an experiencing self. We might make an analogy to something like handedness. Maybe the extrovert is the right-handed person who has a dominant right hand but still uses their left hand for other things. And likewise, the introvert, the left-handed person. Now we might ask if people could be ambidextrous. Could they be an ambivert who had equal ability to use their external and internal processes, who is both who's equally introverted and extroverted. And that's an issue that we will come to in another lecture. But for now, suffice it to say that there are these two types of people, and their initial temperament biases them toward either extroverted functioning or introverted functioning. And this determines much about their interests, values, and limitations. However, Jung believes that everyone needs to develop both sides in order to reconcile opposites in our minds and become fully realized individuals. However, this is not always the case in society. Society may value one over the other, and as such, we might have, as individuals in society, stunted growth in one or the other of these areas. Let me revisit Friedrich Schiller, um, an idea that Jung drew from him. Schiller argued that an unhealthy society only values us for the role that we play in it. So this encourages us to identify with our function, with the face we show to society. This is similar to Jung's concept of the persona. The persona is the mask that we show to others, the side of ourselves that we want to present to them. And Jung says that identifying with our persona is unhealthy because it leaves us hollow. We don't actually identify with ourselves. We identify with this picture of ourselves that we're portraying. Likewise, Schiller argues that identifying with the role we play in society causes unhealthy imbalances in our mind. And this is relevant in Jung's discussion of type and society because society privileges extroversion over introversion. Now, I'm going to use a quote from Jung. This is on pages 392 to 393 of the 1971 Collected Works version of Psychological Types with a lot of my own annotations to explain what he's getting at. But I think this is important. This passage is very is critical to understanding Jung's perspective on introversion in society and also where my perspective differs from Jung's. So here it is. According to Jung, introverts find ourselves in the minority in relation to the general Western view of the world. And if we, if we participate in the general style, we undermine our own foundations. For the general style, acknowledging as it does only the visible and tangible values, or in other words, things that extroverts are more inclined to love and master, is opposed to our specific principles. Because our true talents are invisible, we have to depreciate the subjective factor, or in other words, devalue our own talents or of reflecting in our minds, and must force ourselves to join in the extroverted overvaluation of the object. This forces on us the psychology of the underdog. So it makes us feel that the others, the extroverts, who are apparently able without qualms to conform to the general style, are oppressors against whom we must defend ourselves. We don't, unfortunately, see that our chief error lies in not depending on the subjective factor, so our authentic selves, with the same trust and devotion with which the extrovert relies on the object or pursues their authentic talents. Jung concludes by saying, if we remained true to our own principle, we wouldn't see the world in this way, 
and could presumably develop in psychologically healthy ways. However, I disagree with Jung here. Having studied feminism and theories of oppression, I find Jung's argument problematic. After all, if society privileges extroversion, then introverts have a strong incentive to deny their true selves and identify with the part of themselves that society values. We may sometimes be able to pass as extroverts, but we become psychologically unhealthy in doing so, and we always do so at a disadvantage in a social world created by and for extroverts. This means that even if we realize that we are introverts and that we need to do things differently than the extroverted world around us, it's often difficult, if not impossible, to do so, and we always do so at a disadvantage. On the other hand, it is frequently the case that people who are introverts grow up not even knowing that they are different from other people, just thinking that they are deficient extroverts. And so in this extrovert-centric world, introverts may not even realize that they should be acting differently, and that by adopting what Jung calls the general style of society, they're not being true to their authentic selves. For example, our economy primarily pays us to produce material goods or services that require extroverted talents, or talents that have to do with interacting with the physical world, building things, managing people, sales, teaching, working with technology, presenting persuasive ideas, manual labor, writing, producing aesthetically pleasing art. All of these fields favor those with extroverted talents and disfavor those whose talents are primarily introverted. Introverts might have innovative ideas, but those ideas are unlikely to be noticed or appreciated in a world whose barrier to entry for being noticed includes requirements such as an extroverted communication style, a large social network, or the energy to navigate the physical world, such as a competitive job search process. In areas such as careers, relationships, communication, art, and political participation, introverts are likely to be left out because we don't conform nearly as well to the general style of society. And when we try, we usually end up being seen as lackluster extroverts, trying to do what extroverts do, but not as well, because our true talents are, as Jung put it, invisible to those only looking from an extroverted perspective. In addition to this, Jung argues that societies can be unhealthily introverted or extroverted. And so in an unhealthily extroverted society, even the extroverts are hurt by this. They aren't able to develop their introverted side. They are imbalanced psychologically as well. They tend to be trapped in a paradigm, one from an extroverted society that favors external goods, such as status, power, competitiveness, and material gain, to the point that internal goods, such as character, meaning, insight, and a personal spiritual connection to others or to the universe are absent. This leaves people feeling empty and hollow, always striving for external recognition to fill the void left by their lack of an internal connection with their humanity. Jung's book, Modern Man in Search of a Soul, contains speeches and essays that he presented that critique the attitudes of his day, which are perhaps even more pronounced now. Attitudes of materialism, scientism, and a one-sided Western philosophy that elevates the evidence of the senses above the evidence of the mind or the experiencing self. He is also critical of a related imbalance between trusting in thought and reason and trusting in feelings or unconscious intuitions. We need both. And with a society imbalanced toward extroversion, people are more prone to depression, suicide, and hollowness, as well as attention-seeking, 
and conflict to, as it were, distract themselves from their own emptiness. For this reason, we need to study introversion. We need to better understand this aspect of our human nature so we can discover more about what it means to be human and create a better world for ourselves and our children. Thank you for joining me, and I invite you to subscribe and look for lecture two in this series, where we will take a detailed look at Jung's theory of psychological functions and how these functions delineate different types of introverts and extroverts. Please also visit my website and the Type Justice blog at harrisonpaulauthor.weebly.com or find me on Facebook at Harrison Paul Author, Twitter at hpaulauthor, and my author page on Amazon, Harrison Paul, where you can purchase my Own Voices Introvert Epic Fantasy Series, Cabri vs. the Angels. Thanks again for listening.